It's good to be here again. I was here a few weeks ago and uh, bring you greetings from Lancaster City, Pennsylvania. Um, who here has been to Lancaster and has been downtown, actually? Yeah, Central Market, that kind of area. I live um, on the west side of Lancaster uh, near Franklin Marshall College. And so, like some of you, I get to walk to church and, and be part of a really vibrant town, which I really enjoy. Uh, <clears throat> my wife was almost going to make it this morning, um, but we have our oldest daughter and uh, her husband were in town with their little four-year-old. And so they're up in Lancaster, and so Becky's going to worship at Wheatland uh, PCA Church with them this morning. I bring greetings from them. Speaking of my wife, um, Becky, she's what you might call a high empath. This is someone who's very sensitive to uh, the feelings of others, uh, feels it very deeply. Um, I, on the other hand, am a low empath. So obviously we make a great team. <clears throat> I'm a very sympathetic person. I'll get to that in a moment, but uh, the empathy is definitely her department. I need her uh, to help me notice things in feelings I don't always notice in myself and others. And uh, sometimes she appreciates my calmness in situations that can be highly charged. And uh, when I was thinking about this passage, and I've been mulling over it for a long time, I initially called this sermon Jesus Our Therapist, and that's not the title anymore. I've changed that. Um, it's something else. Uh, learning Sympathy, I'm calling this. And, but, you know, a therapist is someone who is, has that ability uh, to show and use sympathy to help us get somewhere we need to go, um, and oftentimes has the empathy as well. And so the passage I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 4 really is about sympathy. It's about God's sympathy. Um, and the letter, in fact, you may know this letter of Hebrews, it's about 12 chapters long. And really the whole thing, the writer is sympathizing with first century Jews who are Hebrews and they're suffering for their faith. And they're really tempted to draw back, to shrink back to some of their ceremonial Judaism. And he's saying, no, no, look to Jesus, keep clinging to him. And so he really, but he sympathizes with their, their plight, uh, the whole letter. And in the end, the whole letter is about Jesus. The first few chapters are just about how great Jesus is, and that's where we pick up. I'm going to be reading in chapter 4, um, starting at verse 14, and in your pew Bible, it's, uh, pages, um, it's page 1189, 1189 if you'd like to follow along. <clears throat> and in this, one of the things you'll notice as I read this short paragraph, uh, the end of chapter 14, is the author uses the double negative. So look for the double negative. That always means something. Chapter 4, verse 14. <clears throat> Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's go to the grace, the throne of grace of God through Jesus 
and uh, ask him to help us understand this passage a bit. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the confidence we can have because of what Jesus has done and, and who he is to us even today. We can come confidently to you, seeking grace, because we really need it, seeking mercy, because we really need it, help, because we often need it. I need it this morning as I preach and try to stand out of the way and draw attention to you and all of us as we listen to your word preached, we need your help to desire to want to apply it and to understand it. Um, we pray that you come and move us and move in us in your name. Amen. So in the, there's a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And in this book uh, that I'm currently reading, he's, he's a, a defense attorney. And in this book, there's a story of how he takes up the case of a black man named Avery Jenkins. Uh, this is a guy who ended up on death row, and, but who himself was profoundly mentally ill uh, and traumatized since his youth in ways I, I don't even want to describe. It was a difficult section of the book for me to read and very harrowing. Um, he had a murdered dad, an overdosed mom, 19 foster care homes, um, and some of them experiencing severe abuse, leading to his own drug abuse and homelessness and even jail time. In a psychotic episode, he killed a man who he thought was a demon. And when Stevenson went to prison to meet with Avery, uh, he went to advocate for him and try to get him off death row. He was being escorted at the prison, a prison he had been to numerous times. This particular guard with a Dixie tattoo on his arm greeted Stevenson and uh, treated him really roughly, was escorting him into the prison and uh, you know, made, made him do a strip search in the bathroom, which Stevenson never had to endure before made him sign some book he had never had to sign before, just treated really cruelly by this guard. And as he was walking through to meet up with Avery, to meet him for the first time, the guard grabbed him by the arm and said, hey man, did you see that truck out in the yard? And Stevenson, who himself is black, said, yeah, I, I noticed the truck. The truck had like, racist bumper stickers on it, and a gun rack, and just all the whole nine yards, you know, everything that would be really scary to someone in his position. He said, yeah, I saw that truck. And the guy says, I want you to know, that's my truck. So if that, was, if that wasn't disorienting and distressing enough for Stevenson, he goes in to see Avery Jenkins, and is greeted with, with a smile. And then Avery, asked him, he said, hey man, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? So now, now Stevenson's really, he's just completely dis disoriented. And he said, uh, no, I didn't bring you a milkshake. And for the rest of the interview, in which Stevenson's trying to advocate for this guy, Jenkins just went cold, sullen, and grunted through the whole consultation. So as I tell you that story, of Mr. Jenkins 
basically experiencing the opposite of human sympathy his whole life. Did you hurt for him? Did your body respond? Did you have an emotion that maybe you had to kind of put away as I described his plight? Maybe it was tough for you to hear. Maybe you, some of us here might know what Mr. Jenkins has, has been through. Did you sympathize with Stevenson? Did you feel anything for this guy who's laboring for justice for someone who shouldn't be on death row and yet was met with such cruelty, really, and then dismissiveness? Did you, did you feel anything for him? How about the prison guard? Did you empathize with him? Did you sympathize with him at all? His sense of resentment and swollen self-righteousness, whatever it was that would lead him to have such dismissiveness toward a whole other race and act so cruelly. I'll let that linger with you. I'll leave that between you and God. <clears throat> I don't need to know, you know who you sympathize with in that situation. But here's one thing I do know about you, because it's true of me, is that you yourself long to be understood. You want people to understand you, sympathize with you, to understand your best intentions, even when you royally screw up. You, that's what you want. You've made mistakes um, you've, that you've wished you, you could rerun. The things you've said and done, I have. You've also been hurt deeply by others in ways that have just wounded you, ways you maybe haven't even dealt with, that have changed who you are. Or you may have been, you may have, some of you, been downright evil to other people. Maybe in some big way, I don't know. And wouldn't it be great to have someone come alongside you knowing all the good that you've ever done, all the bad that you really are, and would say, I'm, I'm with you in this. I know everything about you, and I hurt for you, and I also I want to help this situation get better. I'm going to take up your case before God. It would be a dream come true, wouldn't it? And in this passage, what we just read is that exactly, this is exactly who we have. That's exactly who humanity has in Christ Jesus, Son of God, in the heavens, a powerful healing person. It's called a high priest. Someone who can sympathize with us in every single way. Not unable to sympathize with us in every single way of being human. And see, here's my, this is my main point, is that, you know, when we, when we enter into this relationship with God through Christ and we, we operate, we engage with Jesus this way, it automatically follows, doesn't it, that we're going to become, we're going to become more sympathetic. We can learn sympathy from him toward others maybe even to ourselves. The passage doesn't say this outright, but the rest of the letter does. Look to Jesus, run to him, 
spur them on so they'll meet together and love each other and show sympathy to each other. To be a, people who exhibit this kind of love and sympathy. That's exactly where he wants to take you. That's exactly what the kind of church he wants you to be. Like a, a priestly rule in your community. And I really want this sermon, that's sort of the theology of it, but I really want this sermon to be super practical. It's easy in sermonizing to spend all your time explaining and then don't spend much time applying. It happens in our, in our circles sometimes. I want to really work hard at that this morning. Is that okay? So I'm going to leave you with some real practical steps of learning sympathy. But it's all rooted in this notion that this is the way God is. This is what he actively does for us all the time in Jesus. And we can learn this. Even if we're not super empathetic, even if it's difficult for us, even some of us, just our makeup is such that we're not sympathetic people, but we can learn. We can learn. If we know his sympathy, we can learn sympathy from him. I know I want to. So if you want to join me along on this ride, hopefully this will be helpful. I'm going to read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, because it's sort of a follow-up to this, and I'm not going to explain this chapter, this part. I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to tell you what was in it really quick, because we could spend all day on it. But I just want to, you know, it's sort of, what does a priest do is the question. And... It's, again, it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And it's pretty straightforward, except for this little part about a guy named Melchizedek. It's a bit weird, but just use your imagination. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 says this. For every high priest chosen from among men, now the author's talking about Old Testament priests here, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God is called by God as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself, but made, but to be a, made, to be a priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which basically means that his priesthood lasts forever. <clears throat> in the days of his flesh, listen to this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's a summary of what it looks like for Jesus to be our high priest. These are, these are past realities, but they're also present realities. And here they are. It's like I said, I'm just going to list them really quick. I'm not going to explain them. You can go back and check them out. But think about this. This is, if you're a Christian, if, if Jesus is yours, this is what he does for you. Two basic things. He, inter, he endures all of our weaknesses. And the second one is, he intercedes for us. 
And underneath that whole weakness thing, he was tempted in every way. Not a way you've been tempted or tried or suffer that he hasn't experienced. Much worse than you. Yet without sin. Actually, it was harder for him because of that. He suffered everything you'll ever encounter, including death. And he learned obedience through what he suffered. Think about that. The Son of God who was not prone to sin, yet he went through this process of being human so he could learn obedience to the Father on our behalf. So he endures all of our weaknesses. He also intercedes for us presently. He was chosen by God to do that. He identifies with our weakness. He doesn't reject us. Our ignorance, our willful sins even, he takes upon himself. He's the last person to be surprised of your shame. He offers a sacrifice of his own body, his own blood, to make us friends with God. And then he cries out to God the Father. That's his ongoing ministry. When you come to God in prayer, he's already praying for you. The point is, we can confidently draw near to God to find all the grace and mercy we need. He's not just putting up with us. He's welcoming us. This is the gospel. This is what makes Christianity unique and powerful and the only thing worth giving ourselves to in this world. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, our suffering, and our sin. So in light of all that, how can we learn some sympathy? And this is where I get, I'm going to give you some practical things. At the risk of being so practical, imagine that. How can you learn this sympathy for others? Well, number one is, I kind of already mentioned this, is just be honest with God. I mean, when you pray, use your imagination. Imagine Jesus is praying for you. He's praying with you. Come to his throne of grace. So that's one. Just be honest with God. And within that, not only praying, but just, you know, you, paying attention to your emotions, your body. How's your body responding to things? What emotions are you feeling? This is one thing one of my counselors helped me with is when, is when I feel an emotion, um, my body's doing something, or I feel an emotion, try to figure out what that emotion really is and bring that to God. Because there's 150 psalms of prayers in our Bibles that encompass all those emotions. And we can bring those to God. But we've got to know what they are first. Am I angry? Am I just super sad? Am I afraid? Am I ashamed? And those are the things we can bring to God. And we ought to bring to him. Um, so using our imaginations to pray, just to come to Jesus, paying attention to our emotions. And I would also say, this is the kind of thing we can bring to Jesus first. Um, short of counseling and therapy, which are all important. And I'll get to that. But sometimes we just need to do this first. So be honest with God. That's number one. I got two more. Can you handle this much practicality? <laughs> all right. You know, sermons are supposed to be very ephemeral and, and abstract, and you're supposed to leave here being befuddled, right? Like, what did he say? I don't know what he was... I can't wrap my head around it. All right, so be honest with God. Number two, um, be honest with some friends. I've got a couple things to say about this. Let someone in on your suffering and your sins. They go hand in hand. But yet, whatever your suffering is at the hands of others, 
or your own sin, let someone in on that. Lean on us. Someone skilled, a trusted professional oftentimes is what it takes. Not all the time and not for everybody, but yeah, pastor, a mentor, a church leader, a, a therapist, someone who can empathize and sympathize with you in the direction of helping you get better. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the, the whole dilemma of physical therapy, which I've, un, I've endured physical therapy a couple times. <clears throat> I really believe in it. And uh, you know the funny thing about physical therapy is, is you need to do the exercises when? When you're not hurting. When you're feeling better, you still do those exercises for your back or your, for me it's my hands or whatever. Um, but why? Because that's when you need it most. You know, you, they're there to make you better. And so a physical therapist will tell you, they'll sympathize with your pain. Oh, that's too bad about your back. That's really. Now here's some exercises. And when you go back in six weeks and you haven't done them, a good physical therapist will also sympathize with that. They won't berate you and smack you upside the head. But they'll also correct you and remind you, you know, you probably should be doing those exercises. Right? And this is, this is what a good close friend or counselor will do with you. They get you, but they urge, urge you not to give up, and they want to see what's best for you. So be honest with some friends. First one is let somebody who knows what they're doing in on your situation. And then a little bit broadly, more broadly than that, is to share deeply with, a, with some more trustworthy friends. Um, not everybody can be entrusted with our deepest concerns. Um, but we all have some. And um, for me, my circle is probably bigger than most. I, I tend to be extroverted. I tend to be a pretty authentic, try to be a pretty authentic person. So I have, a, I have an email list of maybe nine guys who I can go deep with really quickly. And I can share anything with them that I would like prayer for. I want them to bring me to the throne of grace and to pray for me. And I know these guys will. And I know they'll also kick me in the butt if it's needed. Um, but it's only nine guys. And um, I, can go, I go deep with them when I'm in person with them too, back and forth. And I'm learning through that. I, see what I'm saying here is I'm saying if we do that, we're experiencing ther therapy, we're experiencing sympathy from others. And you receive this as a kind of training so then you can also extend sympathy to others. How can you give something to someone that you don't have? How can you become sympathetic when you're not really experiencing it yourself? From the Lord, from others. That's really where it begins. That's how we learn sympathy. So here's my last practical point, if you can handle it. So just be honest with God, be honest with friends. And again, this is the context of the church, but it's also just context in, of everyday life. Listen to people. There's a lot that could be said about learning sympathy. I'm, believe me, I'm preaching a sermon to me. Like, I am learning sympathy. And I need to learn it more. But the one thing I'm doing that's been a little bit fun for me and challenging is just listening to people. Which is, you think is the exact opposite of what I'm doing right now? Because I'm just talking the whole time. So ch challenge me. Try me when I'm 
afterwards, see how I listen to you. If I don't give you the time of day, don't ever listen to me again. And even now I'm listening, because I hear you, some of you chuckling at me. There's one other thing I'm listening to, which I'll get to in a second. Um, anyway, it's a little unfair for me to be up here talking about this, but anyway. A few weeks ago, I led a workshop with some youth leaders, actually youth who are leaders, um, in the Rockies, and I was asked to speak on Christ and culture, and one of my whole sessions was on learning how to listen to our culture, to people. And I did this little workshop where I break them up into partners, and they have to go off, <clears throat> and I give them a topic to discuss, and the leader of the conversation, conversation begins by asking questions of the other person. But the only rules are they, they, they cannot make random comments or uncalled for comments, which is what most conversations are these days. But only thing that could happen was the leader could ask a question and the other person had to answer. Now the other person could ask a question too, but the point is the conversation could never just be, this thing pops into my head and I'm gonna share it. It has to be something related to the question that's being asked. And I'm told that it made a big impact on the people who did it. It was really awkward and hard at first, right? Imagine that. Listening is, you know, it forced, it forced um, the people in this conversation to really be curious about the other person and just sit with that and not go anywhere else. That's what made it hard. See, listening and actually being curious and actually caring for people is very hard. It's also very powerful. As you know, I'm sure you know what it's like to feel that when you left the conversation, you were heard. Especially in these days, right? Social media is kind of, doesn't help us with that. So easy to just get involved with vitriol and anger and miscommunication. And in this world, we need people with bigger ears. May it be that we as Christians would be the people with the biggest ears, but how do we do this? How do you listen to people? And this is the little game part. So I'm actually, I do this now where I'm actually, I'm challenging myself, it's a little game. Can I have a conversation with somebody and never really say anything? What I mean by that is, I can just stay curious and ask questions and not say the first awesome thing that pops into my head. This is what I love to do. Um, it's hard. And here's, here's what I'm doing. You can try this. There's five things. Number one, obviously ask questions of people. Open-ended questions like, how was, that, how was that vacation for you? Oh, what was that experience like? And just let people talk. And then if they don't talk, you just wait. like this, the awkwardness of silence, which you know, silence is very powerful. It's not just dead air, it's a very powerful thing. So we wait. Some of us are more comfortable than others with this. You make eye contact, so you ask questions, you wait for answers, you make eye contact with people. Not in a creepy way, but <laughs> in a way that shows you're really listening. <clears throat> Number four, you give them feedback. And again, this can be too much too, where someone is so involved in the conversation, there's so, there's so much emotion, you don't do that. You just very gently let them know you're listening. Oh yeah, I see. 
Let them know you're there. Maybe do a couple quick summaries or something. These are the things I'm challenging myself to do, you see. And then lastly, resist the temptation to volunteer anything or to say anything that comes to mind. Wait for them to ask you, because think about this. If you're in a conversation with somebody and you're just, they're just going on about something, and then they ask you, what do you think about the road construction on Route 41 or whatever? Guess what? You have an opportunity to say something, and they're, they're, they, want to, they want to know. And so you have a captive audience. There's, a, there's an old um, saying, I don't know where it came from, <clears throat> but it says that you can't answer a question that's not being asked. Too often, especially Christians are known for kind of just saying stuff and answering questions that aren't even being asked. But if we take the time to listen, we'll find out what questions are really being asked. So that's my little game I play with myself. Now, back to listening to you guys. As I read your faces and I hear your, your bellies rumbling, I know when I mentioned the chocolate milkshake at the beginning of the sermon that some of you are thinking about a chocolate milkshake. Or at least lunch. So I'm going to close. I want to close by saying that this Avery Jenkins character, he, didn't, he did in fact get his milkshake. But not how you'd expect it. So Stevenson, the attorney, the defense attorney, he did his best uh, to get Avery Jenkins relief, to mitigate his circumstances. And he wasn't really confident that he would get this guy off death row from a post-conviction hearing, but he thought, well, at least we'll get an appeal. He's doing his best. So he returned to the prison a month later. He didn't, I don't think he had to, but he just wanted to check in on Mr. Jenkins and see how he was feeling, see if he was okay. And when he, when he drove up to the prison, there was that nasty truck again that gave him the, sh the shivers, you know, the one with the Dixie flags and the gun rack and all that. He walks into prison, and, and who does he see coming but that same, the same guard? And he was bracing himself for the worst. And so he said to the guard, preemptively, hey, I'll, I'll go in the bathroom. I'll, I'll get ready for my strip search. And the guy said, no, you don't have to do that. And uh, he said, well, I'll go over and sign that book. He said, no, you don't, you don't need to sign that book. It's fine. You're, we know who you are. You're good. And that just really disoriented Brian again, um, but he, he decided to play along, and, and uh, the, guard, the guard took him by the arm again, and this is what he said. He said, during that trial, you know, I was listening to you all those three days, and I appreciate what you're doing for Mr. Jenkins. It was actually really difficult for me to be in that courtroom, because I came up in the foster system. And he softened, he said, man, I, I didn't know anybody had it as bad as I did. So Stevenson's listening to him, okay? And after a while, they were chatting more and they had a little heart-to-heart -heart about second chances for people and <clears throat> they began to speak in soft tones and even joke around a little bit. And finally, the guard said, yeah, I think, Brian, I think you've done good, real good. And Stevenson was like, befuddled and began to walk away to go see Mr. Jenkins and the guard took him by the arm again. <laughs> he said, listen, I did something I probably wasn't supposed to do. So when, we, when that trial was over, you know how Mr. Jenkins gets. 
Well, I had just about enough. So I took an exit and I took him to a Wendy's and I bought him that chocolate milkshake. You see, the, this guard with the, you know, the Confederate flag tattoo, um, he must have learned sympathy. He must have learned this. Sympathy for a black man, a person who is a fellow sufferer and a fellow sinner. And apparently this intercession, this sympathy that Stevenson was showing him must have gotten to him. He came face to face with his own, his own anger that drove him to such cruelty. He came face to face with his own self. And he began to learn a little bit of sympathy. If we learn, if we rely on the sympathy of Jesus as believers, it flows. It automatically will change us. We can learn sympathy, uh, the kind of sympathy he has for us. And I really believe that's where he wants you to go. He wants me to go. He wants our churches to go. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you again for opening the way for us to come to you. Thank you that you are not one who um, is cold toward us in Christ, but you run to us and you receive us. You know everything about us, the good and the bad. And we thank you that in you we have a faithful high priest, advocate, and friend, and ask that you would, even this day, just this day, transform us a little bit more uh, to learn the sympathy that you show for us. Thank you for it. In your name, amen.